Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 153, where we interview the father, the inventor of the 4% rule, Bill Bangan, and talk about safe withdrawal rates from the man, the myth, the legend himself. As you lengthen the time horizon, you start out at 4.5% for 30 years, and you go to 40, 50, and finally, what I call the Methuselah client, who's going to live forever. Still, it's 4%. It approaches a minimum of 4%, doesn't go below that. And that is a worst-case scenario. That's if you're retiring into a time where there's high inflation and terrible bull markets. 4%, I think you can do better than that if you're careful about managing your investments and, and choosing a good time to retire in terms of market valuations and inflation. Now, I don't see why 5% is not feasible or even higher. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my 4% rule evangelist co-host, Scott Trench. Oh, what a, what a safe intro for this particular show, Mindy. <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. Nope. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, and show you that by following the proven steps, you can put yourself on the road to early financial freedom and get money out of the way so you can lead your best life. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world at the 4% rule, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estates or start your own business, we'll help you build a position capable of launching yourself towards those dreams. We have Bill Bangan on the show today. He invented the 4% rule, which is kind of the cornerstone of the entire FI movement. And once I knew how he was coming on the show, I asked our Facebook group what questions they had about the 4% rule. So a lot of the questions that we asked today come directly from you, the listener. Bill easily answers your questions like the absolute rock star that he is. That's right. We had we had a really fun episode here with Bill. Uh, he he knows his stuff. He invented it. He pioneered it. He's evolved it. It's like here's the math. Here's what it is. Here's my my lane that I'm an expert in. And let's go to town and and you know beat up all the naysayers. So you know this is where you know me and Mindy. If if someone says the four percent rule, eh, it's being questioned. No, it's not. We're 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 pretty comfortable with the four percent rule here. We've done the math. We've talked to the originators now of the rule, both Bill Bengen, and then I would I wouldn't say Michael Kitts is, is an originator of the rule, but he was he's arguably taken some of that work from Bill and evolved it and and gotten into, into even more detail than the original research. So between the two of them, uh, Bill Bengen and Michael Kitts, uh, I think you can learn a tremendous amount about a an easy button way to manage your portfolio and think about the world of retirements, right? There's all these layers you can bring in besides stocks and bonds. Oh, you have an easy button. You got it just for me when I used it on the next time. Uh. I have an easy button, Scott. Oh my God. That was easy. <laughs> she got an easy button because I use it all the time. Okay. 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 I see how it is. Um, <laughs> look, if if you're going with the easy button retirement portfolio of just stocks and bonds, this is the expert. This is the guy who knows how to do it. This is the guy who invented and did the original research to figure out exactly what you need to retire. He's also totally upfront in this episode today that, hey, if you're layering in things like real estate or small businesses, those can easily impact your retirement dates, but those are going to be things that you're going to have to understand and know about your own portfolio in more detail there. 
Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. William Bengen, inventor of the 4% rule. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I am jumping out of my skin to have you here today with us. Great to be here. In 1994, you published an article called Determining Withdrawal Rates Using Historical Data. And this, despite the um, slightly dry headline, was the most fascinating article I've read in my whole life. Okay. It must have been fascinating some people because I got pretty close to some death threats from some people who were very unhappy with the conclusions I reached in that article. They wrote me very nasty letters. Well, that's unfair. First of all, didn't you use math to come up with your conclusions? 
apparently that's not sufficient for some people. <laughs> Math does not lie. Two plus two is always four. That, so. well, those people are wrong. So the initial <laughs> article is just absolutely fascinating. I read it a few years ago and then I reread it again today in preparation of this conversation. And it occurred to me as I was reading, every person that I have ever talked to who has argued with me about the validity of the 4% rule has never read that article. Ah. Every argument that I have heard from somebody saying, you know, oh, well, the 4% rule doesn't account for this, or you can't do that, or it's not going to last, or blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, you should read the article because every point that you just made is answered. Bill knew that you were going to ask that question way back in 1994. He predicted this, and he has an answer for it. If you're listening to this episode and you haven't read the article, I strongly suggest you read it. If you Google William Bengen 4% rule, you will find a link to the original article on Google somewhere. Bill, in your article, you kind of have a framework for addressing the problem which uh, that people have around how much do I need to retire, right? Which is the, the, the central question here. Right. And, and your framework, I believe, has four components to that. One is the, si- the size of the pile of money that you've got, right? Mm-hmm. The second is the amount of uh, the, well, the, the amount you're going to withdraw. Well, I guess there's five components. The amount you're going to withdraw from that pile on a regular basis, and then how inflation, stock market returns, and bond returns impact how big that pile needs to be in order to sustain your desired withdrawal rate. Is that right? Can you walk us through why you kind of thought about that with that framework, or if I'm maybe misinterpreting it, you have a different lens. No, that was the initial framework. And actually, there are a lot more factors than those four. For example, if you feel that you want to leave money to your heirs after you pass away, uh, you have to specify that. And that, of course, would reduce your withdrawal rate. And that's an important consideration. How often are you going to rebalance your portfolio? That doesn't seem like it's a very important issue, but that can significantly increase your withdrawal rates, believe it or not. If you, instead of follow the conventional wisdom of once a year rebalance, you know, maybe every three years, every five years, let your profits run, so to speak. So at that time, back in 94, which seems like an awfully long time ago, I was looking at, I was trying to identify what I thought were the most important factors uh, that people would need to look to, to solve this particular puzzle. And those are those, as you mentioned, the four most important that left out to me, I added more later on. Uh, and then I came up with that number of four and a half percent, which I, I can remember the moment I was sitting at my computer and I entered it and all of a sudden all the portfolios survived 30 years. And it was a, a shocking experience. I said, I'm here. I've got a number. I know what it is. It's four and a half percent. And it's a lot lower than I thought it would be because conventional wisdom at that time was much higher or much lower, depending upon how you invested. But that's what I came up with. And that was a pretty, pretty exciting moment in my life. I, so, so I, I think it's fascinating, and why the reason why it's so important to have found that number is because when you can identify that, you can look. The goal is if you go too low on your safe withdrawal rate, you're building up a stockpile that's too big and will take and will delay your retirement by a large amount of time. If you go too small, you you risk running out, right? And so that's why that's the at the highest level. If you're listening, that the the, in, the staggering importance of you discovering this number here, this four four percent. Four and a half percent number. Would you say four point two five? At the time, it was around four point one five. I've rounded off to four point two because I didn't want to give the impression it was a, a pre- very precise calculation. You know, the, these things are subject to change. 
but you're right and that that's a worst case scenario and when i you know in later years i continue research uh i found that there were uh, individuals who retired who could have uh withdrawn as much as 13 percent believe it or not in very fortunate circumstances uh, and the average long term was seven percent so what caused it to go from seven percent to long-term errors down to four and a half well the person who retired in 1968 faced a perfect storm. You had two terrific bear markets back-to-back in 69, 70, and 73, 74. They were big. And then inflation came in. And inflation is a thief in the night for retirees because it forces them to increase their withdrawals every year, and then it locks that in. I mean, stock market, bull, bear markets, they come and go. You're here, you lose some money, then you make it back. But when you have high inflation and you're increasing withdrawal rate, that's locked in for all your retirement. So it's really a scary prospect to face high inflation during retirement. Yeah, so, so in your article, you point out that the, the period in, in 1973 to 1974 is actually worse than, for example, the, the Great Depression for retirees because of that inflation component. Could you kind of walk us through how you thought about that? Yeah, sure. The Great Depression was very interesting because it was a deflationary period. The first three, four years, if you retired, let's say 1929, let's say the stock market crashed today, oh, I think I'll retire. And uh, you went through the next four years of a terrible bear market, lost 90%. But your withdrawals, because of deflation, were coming down by 10% a year for each year for four years. And they, to a large extent, offset the stock market losses that you incurred. As a result, the Great Depression was not the worst case scenario was the high inflation of the 70s, which holds the record now. Yeah, I want to come in here and read. This is almost verbatim from the original that you wrote. It said, an analysis of a retiree with $500,000 retiring in 1929 shows his portfolio dipping to or sees his portfolio dipping to a low of $200,000. If he converted to 100% bonds in 1933, his funds would run out in 17 years. 25% stocks runs out in 20 years. 50% stocks runs out in 27 years. But if he stayed in his original 75% stock portfolio, he would have $1.2 million in 1992, assuming he was still alive. And this is the part that I love the most. If he converted to 100% stocks in 1933, he'd have $42 million in 1992. Well, that would have been a nice reward for extreme bravery because 1933 was a tough time to go 100% stocks after four years of miserable performance. You know, how do you get over that? The best time to invest is likely to be right after the worst time to invest. In 2008, when the stock market crashed, if you put money into the stock market, you saw some pretty amazing growth. In March of 2020, if you pulled all your money out as it was crashing and then you didn't have it back in there, it was go. it like marched right back up. What in weeks? Yes. How do you advise a client who is freaking out about the current stock market? Because, and this is a great time to uh, say my little disclaimer, past performance is not indicative of future gains. That's but how cool. do you advise somebody to stay the course when you could have just a horrible This guy in 1929 lost $300,000. He lost most of his savings. How do you advise them to keep the course? We're speaking metaphorically now because I have no clients, of course. I'm retired myself. But if I did have a client, uh, I'd tell them uh, at that point, stock's very cheap. 
And when stocks are cheap, it's always a great time to buy stocks, no matter what your fears, no matter what your lizard brain is telling you <laughs> about the terrible things that are going on in the world, you should just take the money and put it in there because they will eventually bottom and you'll do extremely well for a number of years. You mentioned earlier that uh, you identified more than four things besides inflation, the things we discussed, but, but the inflation, the size of your portfolio, the return of stocks and return of bonds. Have you in, in, the, in future years uh, been able to identify ways to increase that safe withdrawal from that 4.15% that you mentioned earlier to a higher number? And if so, what are, what are some of the things that you found um, that people can do to, to, to retire faster? Sure. Absolutely. Well, about 94 was baby steps for me. I was working with only two asset classes. I was working with large company U.S. stocks and U.S. treasuries. Uh, then about a few years later, after that, I added small company stocks into the mix, and they dramatically improved the picture. They actually raised the withdrawal rate to about 4.5%. And uh, that's using a modest amount of small company stocks. If you really want to go strictly by what happened historically, there have been periods of time when you could have gotten 25% withdrawal rates just by using small company stocks. I know that sounds absurd, but that's what's happened historically. So that's an asset class that's worth looking into, having your portfolio, because they boost returns and boost your withdrawal rates as well. Uh, let's clarify for the listeners, what do you consider large companies and what do you consider small companies? If it's in Morningstar Ibbotson has a database, and uh, for them, you know, the large companies are the mega large companies, the companies many billions of dollars. You know, I, I think generally small companies are those with market capitalizations of less than one or two billion dollars. In today's terms, that's a small company. <laughs> one of the things that really annoys me uh, on a regular basis, <laughs> frankly, is uh, when folks say, ah, the, the 4% rule, it doesn't apply in this, it doesn't apply to that. It's not good for early retirees. So for example, I'm, I just turned 30 years old recently and I created a position of financial independence and I considered myself financially free the moment I hit the 4% rule when I had 25 times my annual spending for life. Your research really works on that 30-year timeline. I realize that in some cases, you'll deplete the initial reserve and you'll end up after 30 years with less overall wealth. You start for the million dollars, withdraw at that 4% rate, you might end up with less wealth at the end of 30 years, but you don't run out entirely. For a young person who's thinking about early financial independence, how would you walk through the idea of using the 4% rule to inform their, their journey there? Okay. Well, how much, uh, you think, what, 40, 50 years, perhaps, they might be in retirement or more? Oh, I hope to live to be 100. I'll be uh, 70 years. Okay. Okay, 70 years. I don't want to plug my book, but I wrote a book about it, and I'd recommend you get a hold of that because I went through in much greater detail than my original article all these kinds of issues. But I'll be happy to tell you what I discovered. I discovered that as you lengthen the time horizon, you start out at 4.5% for 30 years, and you go to 40 and 50. And finally, what I call a Methuselah client, who's going to live forever, still is 4%. It approaches a minimum of 4%, doesn't go below that. And that is a worst case scenario. That's if you're retiring into a time where there's high inflation and terrible bull markets. 4%, I think you can do better than that if you're careful about managing your investments and, and choosing a good time to retire in terms of market valuations and inflation. 
Now, I don't see why 5% is not feasible or even higher. Absolutely, yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, I kind of, I've, I've uh, researched enough of this to know that that that's the inevitable conclusion. And for those who are not math nerds, there's this kind of rule of the difference between thirty years and forever is not very math, very mathematically significant in these types of calculations when you're looking at compounding returns and those types of things. But what, another item on that, and again, a big debate in our fire community here is how rigidly to adhere to the four percent rule. And there's a lot of naysayers out there. Mindy and I are on your side and completely, you know, understand the math and the research behind it and feel that a balanced portfolio at four percent is it is it. You're ready to go. Mm-hmm. But what I love about your research is that your research doesn't it assumes that it's just that portfolio and nothing else. There's no adjustment for lifestyle spending in down years. There's no other sources of income. There's no social security involved in it, right? It's just the asset class and spending from that in isolation. Is that right? That's right. That's the issue that I chose to study. I mean, other researchers have looked at a lot of the other topics that you talked about, but I I kind of want to look, I call a retirement boy, it's like a cow. It's your retirement cow and you want to get milk for the rest of your life out of it. So <laughs> Oh, I'm studying what what is the care and maintenance of this cow to last you your whole life so you get milk, you know, right to the last breath. And I'm the other issues I'm leaving to other people. I've got enough to <laughs> study those issues, believe me. I don't know much about cows, so my <laughs> Took a lot of learning. I want to tag on what Scott was just asking about. Oh, I want a 70-year retirement. He's not retiring this year. He might retire next year. Um, Michael Kitsis wrote an article called How Has the 4% Rule Held Up Since the Tech Bubble and the 2008 Financial Crisis? And if you scroll through this article, you will come to a chart called Terminal Wealth After 30 Years of Following the 4% Safe Withdrawal Rate All Historical Years. And he... Unfortunately, there's so many years in here that the lines get kind of mixed up, but you can see that if you start off with a million dollars, in almost every case, you still have at least a million dollars after 30 years. So you've essentially not taken anything out because your portfolio has grown. There was, I believe he said one year where it dipped below zero, and that was even in 31 years out, I think. So... I mean, math doesn't lie. The people that are sending you nasty grams should rescind those because you used math and math doesn't lie. And this art, this, I'm very thankful to Michael for doing this chart because it's so easily viewable and it's so easily understood that, hey, this makes sense. This 4% rule makes sense. But even if you don't want 4%, if this still, like a Bill Bangan, brilliant Bill Bangan, isn't able to convince you that 4% works, 3% in your initial study said if you withdraw at 3% every single year without fail, 50 years plus, that initial retirement account would last you. you know, so, I'm going to take your word for it because I haven't looked at my original paper in a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> Well, I'm glad you mentioned Michael Kitsy. He's a brilliant guy, a great friend of mine. And uh, uh, he's right about a lot of things. If you take a look at it, how much money do most people have less? 97% of people, all retirees, end up with as much money as they started with in nominal terms. In other words, almost everyone. But you know, when inflation is eating away at that during the 30 years. So the question is, how much do you really end up with in terms of purchasing power? Well, still, 75% of retirees end up with as much as they had in purchasing power as they started. So still, it's a very high percentage. 
And that's using, you know, the worst case scenario. That's why, you know, there is a good case to be made. If you can take out more and you can justify it, you should and enjoy it. We've interviewed a lot of people uh, uh, here over the years and really come to know a lot of early retirees. And while the 4% rules math is very sound and we've discussed it at length and there's a ton of uh, uh, reasons to be able to be willing to rely on it, most perhaps most importantly is that most of the time, the vast majority of the time, you're going to end up with much more wealth in real or nominal terms than you started with if you abide by the rule. But in practice, we find that people still don't rely on it. People hit that 4% rule, then they've got a cash reserve. Then they might have another asset or two, and then they might have part-time work for those types of things. And so a problem that I'm sensing that that I've uh, encountered in this world of early retirees is this, I think, abundant over-conservatism, building a portfolio and sets of income that are so far and away more than is what's needed to sustain their lifestyles that it's it's delaying retirement. Do you ever wonder why psychologically a lot of people can't accept the 4% rule in isolation and rely on that without all these other buffers? And they want to, they feel they need to take out less to be safe. That's right. Yes. I just think, you know, when you think about retirement, it's scary in the sense that if you start running out of money, there's not much you can do, you know, at age 85, are you going to become a a fashion model at 85? I don't think so. You know, I'm bringing the big bucks. Uh, So I understand the reason people want to be conservative. And that's why I looked at the worst case scenario, the first thing, but I don't think it's necessary to be that negative. I mean, if let's say you're an investor in 2009, March, when the market bottomed, okay? Recently, I discovered a way to predict what the withdrawal rate should be based on inflation and market valuations at the time. It was a big breakthrough. It was based on Mike Kitsy's article, and I added, he did it with market valuations. I had inflation. And I looked at the 2009 March investor, and I figured out he could have taken out 6.5% very comfortably because the market was cheap, inflation was low. So if you retired there, you could take out six and a half. And probably if you're going to retire for 70 years, it would have been five and a half to six. So there are times uh, if you don't want to die outrageously rich, that you can do much better than four and a half percent. Yeah. And, and again, the, 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 the challenge I have or the frustration I have for some folks is like, hey, that's the problem is in pursuit of dying outrageously rich, you know, which is not what they're intending it, but their intent is to be conservative. The output is going to, you're going to die outrageously rich and you're going to miss out on those extra years. For example, if you hate your job of working that job, instead of retiring early, if you're not familiar and comfortable with the mathematics of these things. So this, this can have a real world impact on how happy people are, how productive they are in a lot of ways, if they could begin relying more on, on the math and understanding it more. Yeah, I agree with you. I trust the math because I've been through it for 27 years, you know, and that things worked uh, very well. Although you have to have a caveat. You have to you have to tell people that there's a possibility. This is not a law of nature we're looking at. You know, things could change. If you got into a really bad period of very high inflation that lasted for a long time, you know, uh, even the four and a half percent rule could be in trouble. But I don't see that on the horizon. I, I don't. Even though the Federal Reserve is trying to get inflation up there, it's not having much luck. So we'll see what happens. So I hear 
what Scott's saying. And I hear a lot of these early retirees or, or future early retirees with one more year syndrome. Oh, I just need to work one more year to, to really cement my, my position. And it's math. It's so hard to just not sit here and, and keep saying it's math, it's math, it's math. But this is the worst case scenario. And like you said in your most recent article, you could have taken up to 13% in some situations. Now, unfortunately, you can't know that her inflation isn't on the horizon. You can guess, you can you know look at a lot of indicators, but it, it seems that... It just seems that 4%, you keep coming back to this number. And, you know, if 4% doesn't give you calm, if Bill Bengen saying that it's 4% doesn't give you calm and Scott and I agreeing with him 100% because he's totally right, 3% yeah. was when you did the math, 3% every year, every time anybody retired, 50 years at least. Yeah, I, I, and I know there are people, some of my colleagues who have, warned about 4% being dangerous in this environment with very low acid returns, you know, to be expected. But we've had periods of time where assets have returned poorly. Uh, 1966, 1982, the S&P basically price returned zero. It did nothing for 16 years. And we may have a period like that coming up, who knows? But uh, once again, it's got to be a combination of really bad inflation, low returns, low returns enough or not to do it at least as far as I can see. When we have, we have a lot of folks, again, listening to, to our show that have other assets outside of uh, stocks and bonds and traditional portfolios. Do you have a framework that you apply for clients, uh, maybe past clients, you know, I know you're retired now, but, but where, hey, I've got uh, a business income and I've got a real estate portfolio and then I've also got this stock and bond portfolio and those types of things. And how do you think through layering those different types of assets and, and being conservative with all of that to, to get as fast as possible to the finish line? I guess my, my quick answer to that is I, I, when I was an advisor, I didn't do, do it. Yeah. Essentially, I told them, look, whatever assets you have like that, business, real estate, you understand it better than I do, you know, what the prospects are for that. I just said, let me focus here on your portfolio, which I understand something, an animal I've studied for very many years, do you need to get the maximum out of it or not? That's the first question. If you need to get the maximum out of it, I can tell you what you can safely take out. If you need less, well, then we'll take less, and then you're going, your wealth is going to balloon during retirement. So I usually didn't try to get into details of clients' assets because they understood them a lot better you know, generally than I did. Got it. Stocks. Well, fair enough. What, one of the th one of the thoughts I've just had as as a real estate investor in conjunction with my my stock portfolio is, you know, it, it seems to me that a real estate investor would intend to live off of cash flow after not just their financing but their other expenses that are related to the property, like management, vacancy allowance, maintenance, those types of things. And by doing so, you're really living off of the dividend produced by the, the real estate and not even counting the, the inflation aspect. And, and so in a lot of ways you can, and, and I don't even know, but I wanted to test this, this framework out on you at a high level of like, is that even more conservative perhaps than a, the, the income uh, and drawdown on a stock and bond portfolio because I'm only spending the cash flow, for example. Well, once again, it, I guess it depends upon the quality of your real estate portfolio, what you know about it and what its prospects are. Completely different stocks and bonds, you know, different kinds of assets with, with different uh, different kind of track records. In, real estate is so individual, isn't it, really, compared to buying a, an S&P 500 stock fund. 
which gives you a blended portfolio across many companies and you're not worried about the performance of any one real estate or any one particular company. Uh, so unless, I, uh, unless you have a vast real estate portfolio, which you can treat as a fund, you know, uh, I guess you just got to be sure you know what you're investing in. That's really important. Fair enough. Okay, let's talk about withdraw. What does it actually look like when you are withdrawing these funds? When you're investing in the beginning, there's the argument for dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. And when we posed that to Michael Kitsis in episode 120, he said, if you've got a big pile of cash, throw it all in at once. Don't worry about the dollar cost averaging. Just put it all in now. Because in 50 years, does it matter that you bought it at 780 or 782? No. What do you recommend for the actual withdrawing? Do you do it lump sum every year or do you do it every month or quarterly? How do you recommend that? Yeah, I had clients who did all of the above. Uh, <laughs> basically to their desires. You know, if you want it monthly, we'll have it sent you out monthly. If you want it quarterly, annually. The research is based on annual withdrawals done toward the end of the year. Okay, so that's, now some people have done research where they've withdrawn the money at the beginning of the year, and it gives you a lower withdrawal rate. Instead of four and a half, it's probably 4.2. It's just, you know, just the way the math goes. But uh, it's up to the client what they want to do. Probably my four and a half percent would, if they're going to be taking money out during the year, four and a half percent might be a little optimistic for them. They should maybe work with a little lower, maybe four, four or four, three, because they're taking money out of the portfolio sooner than we research expected. Okay. And why would you take it out at the end of the year? Why do you recommend that? Uh, I just simply use that. I adopted that. Uh, I think it was based a lot of my clients retired with some substantial cash accounts and they used that money to start retirement. And then they went into their IRAs and their other retirement accounts. So it just seemed like a reflection of what my client's practice was at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I could have set up spreadsheets, take out monthly, but I want to tell you, my spreadsheets with one annual withdrawal are 100 megabytes each. They take 25 seconds to load. And uh, it, it, uh, <laughs> I need a much faster computer, like a Cray or something, to get this uh, to the next level. <laughs> you, you mentioned um, rebalancing earlier and yeah. how that can affect the, the withdrawal rates. Can you walk us through kind of your thought process on how rebalancing uh, appropriately can, can maximize your, or, or reduce your safe withdrawal rate? Sure. And this is a controversial area. You know, this is kind of cutting edge research. And I've talked to people about it in my field who don't agree with me, but haven't been able to explain why I'm wrong. <laughs> but essentially, I've been testing. I people disagree hundred... with it, but they're wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I know I'm not always right. So I'm, I'm going to listen to what folks say to me. There's a lot of smart people out there who can teach me things. Mm -hmm. But uh, essentially, I've been testing a lot of different retirement dates. I have 260 retirements between 1926, let's say, and 1991, which have 30-year time horizons. And I've been discovering consistently that if you withdraw at one year and do it each year, it does not optimize your withdrawal rate. That if you wait for three years or five years, and it depends upon the particular circumstances, you know, you can increase your withdrawal rate by two tenths, 25 basis points, you know, go from four and a half to four and three quarters, which is not insignificant, you know, in the context of things. 
And that's difficult for some people to accept. Uh, but that's what my research is showing. It's very consistent, and I haven't completed it, but that's the indications that I have that rebalancing at a much longer interval than is commonly accepted is probably beneficial for your retirement. Fair enough. One of the concerns I have as a younger investor about bonds in general is I think we've just kind of seen like 40 to 45 years of falling interest rates, basically. And so every time that happens, that increases the equity value of your bond portfolio, right? Right. You know, seeing rates as low as they are today, that, you know, every time a rate is reduced even just a little bit, it gives a lot more leverage to that lowered interest rate. But it seems to me as a young investor that that can't continue forever and that rates will have to rise during a, a large chunk of my lifetime. Does that forecast change anything about how you think about rebalancing portfolios or thinking through them? Or am I crazy and I should just kind of... You no, know, I, I think you have a tremendously valid point. I mean, interest rates have been declining for so long. There are a lot of people around who don't remember a period of time when they rose. I mean, 1982 is when the big decline started. Uh, it's almost 30 years ago. And bonds for years have provided income and they provided diversification. But I agree, that long game is probably over, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future until interest rates start getting back up to closer to what we used to expect. When that happens, I don't know. But I was thinking uh, myself that um, although I advocate like a 55, 60% equity allocation and the rest in bonds, that the next time I get an opportunity to rebalance my portfolio, you know, when there's this big stock market decline, we were almost there earlier this year, it just didn't quite come down far enough, I might go to a much higher allocation of stocks than I would normally expect. I might go to 75, 80, 85, recognize that bonds really don't contribute anything anymore, as you pointed out. And then, you know, not hold that allocation forever, you know, as the stock market rises, and interest rates rise, pair it back. But I think that's one time you could make a case for very aggressive stock allocation when bonds offer so little. Yeah. And, and again, just if you're listening and trying to follow along here and you're not familiar with how interest rates affect bond portfolios, if I have $100,000 in bonds and interest rates are 1%, you know, then then I, that's the yield, right? And and if and if yields go down to half a percent, for example, then my portfolio has ballooned to two hundred thousand dollars because people are going to pay two hundred thousand dollars to get a one percent yield. That I can sell my bond portfolio at a, at a half a percent yield, right? And so the, the the challenge that's happening right now in twenty twenty for me to reconcile in my head is why are bond why have bonds done so well? In the last year, well, it's because bonds were really low, and they went even lower, right? Recently, and so great. I'm thinking here, like, if I've got a very low interest rate, I'm not going to get any income from that. That's going to be meaningful to my lifestyle. Certainly, it doesn't seem like it'll be in line with inflation. And my upside is only if they continue to go down. That said, by getting out of the bonds game, we're moving away. We're, we're, you're losing this like huge leverage that's happening every time the interest rates fall further because they're lowering them in 25, 50 basis point chunks. So anyways, it's just a kind of interesting uh, problem that I'm trying to grapple with in the context of this whole discussion about portfolio balancing. Yeah, well, it's the first time we've really come into a situation like this where interest rates have been this low and bonds have been that useless. <laughs> but you know, I, I, one thing I just want to quantify or, or clarify, I, I wouldn't be going 85% stocks in this environment right now you know, with the very high valuations. I'd be real careful about that. 
And that, uh, where do you put your money in this environment? That's a real dilemma, real dilemma for folks. Yeah, well, the other one is like, is it going to be inflation, right? It's almost like every, we've got this whole problem here of like, do I balance into cash? Well, no, I'm gonna, I might have a lot of inflation. Do I put it into stocks? They might be overvalued. Do I put it into bonds? There's no yield. Yeah. Uh, so that's why bigger pockets is really popular right now, I guess, with the real estate. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that, that there's a lot of merit to that. So, yeah, it could be interesting with all that. I want to talk about taxed accounts because in your original article, you said, note that since we are assuming that all retirement assets are held in tax-deferred accounts, capital gains taxes are not a concern. If the assets had been held in a taxable account, the conclusion might have been different as the certainty of substantial capital gains taxes would have to be weighed against the probability of a large stock market decline and the loss of the benefit of a step-up in basis upon death. So assuming that all of my accounts are not in tax-deferred, how do taxes, how do you account for capital gains taxes? You know, I, I did research on taxable accounts as well, and that's in the book. I don't know, I don't know if I did it on any of the papers. Uh, and generally, the withdrawal rates are about 10%, maybe 15% lower. It depends upon your, you know, your effective tax rate. Uh, so if you're starting with 4.5%, you might end up with a 4% or a 3.8% withdrawal rate for a taxable account. Still okay, because... We talk about withdrawals from tax-deferred accounts, but we don't talk about the taxes you're going to have to pay in those eventually anyway. So I think you're going to end up with about the same amount of money after taxes using those different withdrawal rates, whether it's a tax-deferred or taxable account. You have mentioned this book. Can you tell us the name of this book, please? Oh, yeah. Uh, Conserving Client Portfolios During Retirement. And I'm using this COVID experience here to up for, upgrade that book and revise it and add a lot of new research uh, that's happened in the last 15 years since I wrote that book. What, what, are, what are some of those learnings that you're specifically interested in layering in? The, the recent discoveries you're saying? Yes. Uh, well, for a long time there, you know, we were all stuck in that 4.5% we know, road mode. We knew that was the worst case scenario. And then Michael Kitsis, you know, had a wonderful chart, which he showed cheap stock markets you can take out more. But he raised that guideline to 5% and 5.5%. But we had no process by which we could go from these low levels to 6 or 8 or 13. And just recently, using my little research as a base, I was able to find a way to actually raise those withdrawal rates to the very high rates that are achieved in the past, if you're lucky enough to uh, come into the circumstances that prevailed, you know, which is basically very low stock market valuations, which you don't have, and low inflation, which we do have. But uh, very high valuations we have today, you know, force you down around 5%. And unfortunately, until those valuations come down, you really can't take advantage of the much higher withdrawal rates that uh, we were able to enjoy in the past. That, that was a big piece. That was the last big piece and allowed basically me to specify a whole process from soup to nuts, picking a withdrawal rate, uh, following your plan and monitoring, and also deciding if it's in trouble. Because sometimes withdrawal plans will get in trouble if you got a little greedy with your withdrawal rates, and then deciding what to do with your plan once it is in trouble. So that's all in place. I'm writing an article for the Journal of Financial Planning where it all began, you know, years ago. And that should come out early next year. And I'll lay out that whole process uh, for the first time. 
Well, I mean, that, that's fascinating because if you're, if you're interested in early retirement and you want to spend $40,000 per year, for example, if you're using the 4% rule, you got to build up a million dollar portfolio. If you can get to eight with some of this timing and some of the, the you know, by, by leveraging this research, and I, it sounds like there's a little bit of a timing element to it as well, uh, that could potentially cut your portfolio needed to 500,000 in half. How many years does that shave off your, your timeline? I don't know, but it's, it's a lot. It's a big deal. Yeah, I, I think that's very significant. That, that's why I'm looking at the issue so heavily because I'm sensitive to the criticism people gave years ago that you accumulate too much wealth. They were right. You do that. Lately, though, the criticism has been the opposite way. <laughs> you can't win sometimes. You know, your withdrawal rate's too high. You're going to run out of money. So uh, we'll see what happens, what comes out in the wash. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. NetSuite.com slash BP Money. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. 
Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Okay, so we've talked about uh, a lot of things here, but we haven't talked about how frequently somebody should be reviewing what's in their portfolio in general. Um, My husband gets up and every morning he looks at the retirement portfolio, the stock holdings and all of that, because Mm -hmm. he is the biggest money nerd ever. And (laughs) that gives him joy to be able to see that and know that we're on track. You don't have to check it every day, sweetie, but he does. So... Then there's other people who are like, I never look at it ever. And I know there's a false, I've given this false statement many times, but like the best returns are for dead people or something like that. And when when you don't look at it, you tend to do better. How often do you advise people look at their portfolios? Oh, no more than every 15 minutes. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> too much. It, it's a good idea uh, not to look at it too big. I mean, I'm a once-a-day person myself, I, but that's a habit I developed because I manage money for clients and I had a big responsibility. I think once a month, you know, is good enough because how much do things change in a month, really? And uh, I wouldn't do it more often than that because it can lead you into some trouble with a lizard brain kicking in and you start to say, oh, I better sell. This doesn't look good. And then the market takes off, you know, the next week. That, that's the way markets are. Totally unpredictable. Totally unpredictable. Okay, when the crash happened in March, the it's six months ago, March or eight or whatever, uh, we interviewed a bunch of people about uh, early retirees about their portfolio and how they're feeling. And the mad scientist Brandon said, "You know, I really thought I was going to be totally fine." with whatever happened and then this giant crash. And I realized that I was not as fine as I thought I was going to be. So I am not making any rash decisions right now. I'm writing down my feelings. And then when the market comes back, because he has utter faith that the market will come back, as do most of us, um, when the market comes back, I'm going to revisit my asset allocation based on the feelings that I have written down in real time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really brilliant piece of advice. So I just wanted to share that again. Yeah. Self-analysis. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Take your emotions, put them down on a piece of paper, and then don't act on them. Mm-hmm. Great advice. He's a smart uh, how, guy. Have you seen that happen across your clients over over a period of years where where in spite of the, you know, all, all of that 
education up front, people still panic and sell and do the wrong thing at the wrong time to to blow up this formula? Yeah, I've had clients, you know, just simply take control of their portfolio and sell everything. And and I remember going to a financial planning conference in the fall of 2008. Remember, October, November were terrible months, 15, 20% down. And I was talking to financial planners. I'd gotten my client completely out of stocks at that time. So I was feeling pretty good. But there are financial planners there who are literally in tears because their clients' portfolios have been devastated and they didn't know how they were able to tell their clients how to, how to grope with that. It's a serious problem when the markets decline that much and unexpected. If the markets came back, you're right. The question is, will they always come back as fast as they have? Will the Federal Reserve always be there, you know, with QE uh, to pump markets back up? Who knows? Yeah, I think I think it's like the the outlook that I think Mindy and I share is that the investment is there for the very 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 long term, you know, and it doesn't matter if if I'm buying it at 100 today or 70 tomorrow, you know, I'm going to continue to buy consistently for the long term with my portfolio outlook and stay the course on that. And you know, in in March this year it was scary. We didn't know it was going to come back. We just yeah. knew it was tanking. But uh, my belief was not that it was going to come back within a month. My belief was that over my uh, Methuselah uh, lifetime of investing, uh, as you mentioned, I will be in a better place over the long run by continuing to apply my formula and trusting the math over the long term. Well, you folks are in the saving phase mm-hmm. of this problem. And I agree with you 100%. That's the way to look at it, in the saving phase. When you pass over the Rubicon and go into retirement, I suggest that there may be a different outlook. Mm-hmm. That amount of money you've accumulated is all you're going to have. So I, I, I would be very, very protective of that, that asset base at that time, and I wouldn't expose it to undue risks from very highly valued markets uh, or from inflation. But I agree with you. During the saving phase, you're doing the right thing. You need to be aggressive. You need to trust in financial investments and uh, let it ride so you build a pile as big as possible. So let me ask you about that. There's there's a period between the savings phase and the re- retirement phase, right? Where it's not a light switch. It's a, I'm thinking about, I'm planning it, I'm going to tease into it. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. That we've experienced with a lot of folks. Perhaps you've experienced that with, with your clients. Uh, how does that transition look? How do you set yourself up for a really healthy transition with your portfolio there? Uh, from a thought process perspective? That's a complex issue. Uh, it depends on, let's say you were 100% stocks at age 60 and you're saying five years, I'm going to retire. I might say, well, you know, we're, we're getting to a 60-40 portfolio at age 65. You're at 100% stocks now. Why don't we just knock, you know, so many percentage off stocks each year and f- transition phase into that uh, ideal portfolio? That's one way I've done it with clients. And it, once again, it depends on our market outlook. You know, uh, if you're age 60 and it's 2000 and uh, the tech bubble is happening, maybe you'll say, why don't we do 60% now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and conserve some of that stuff. So it's, it's, it's a complex issue, really, really tough. Well, I would tend to look at it some kind of phase in, kind of like reverse uh, buying in, you know, accumulating capital gradually. In the original article, you mentioned a 50-50 stock bond allocation, and then you looked into uh, 0% stocks, 25-50, 75, and 100% stocks. And in the article, you came to the conclusion that it was between 50 and 75% stocks. 
What are you thinking about now? It almost seems like bonds return nothing, so you don't want those, but the stock market is so highly valued, maybe you don't want everything there. How do you determine what's best for you? Scott is 30. I am um, a little older. If you're at your age, you know, you probably don't need to worry too much about anything. You've got many years left to accumulate and uh, just let it ride, you know. I, when the uh, stock market crashed in February, I was just 10% stocks. I actively managed my portfolio. And I rapidly moved it up to 25%. You have to buy when the market goes down and you're light on stocks, you have to buy. And once again, it's blind faith. <laughs> the market's going to come back, okay? Because uh, that's, that's always worked. They always have. Uh, and I was looking for the market to go even lower, and I would have got to 60 or 70% stocks very quickly, but it didn't happen. So I'm stuck somewhere right now about 20% stocks, 5% gold, and the rest in various forms of fixed income investments. So I'm not happy about that, but I just feel that, that these valuations is a lot of risk. And I don't want to expose that nest egg to the big risks. You know, Warren Buffett says, you know, first rule of investing, don't lose money. Second rule, don't forget the first rule. So, so you're having a very good 2020, I'm hearing, uh, if most of that is in fixed income investments and, and you bought right at the bottom of that, uh, that, that dip there in March. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with the prices I got, you know, back uh, in, early, in March, mid-March. And I was lucky, a couple of years ago, they were forecasting interest rates were going to go down to zero. So CDs were about 3% there. I bought a bunch of CDs at 3%, which really looked awful at the time, but now look pretty good because I got about five, seven-year positions and they're going to last a little to the risk that bonds have. So, uh, you know, I, I, w- I am not, I think Mindy would, would say she's not, you know, an expert on price, price levels in the stock market, for example, with those types of things. And so we passively manage our portfolios for the, the vast majority of them. Is that right, Mindy? Yeah. Well, I don't do it at all. My husband passively manages it, but he's always, I, I don't know that I could call it passive because he looks at it every single day. He's not trading. He's not like a day trader. He but is- The investments, the funds are probably passively managed, index funds or something. Index something. funds, but we do have some individual stocks because he is a tech geek as well and loves to research that and jump in on some of those properties or some of those companies. I, I feel like I'm not in a position to be able to assess- the stock market's pricing, for example, like to me, whether the, the stock market, again, maybe that's because I'm in the savings phase and not the, the retirement phase with that. Um, for other folks, though, who maybe are in the retirement phase, how do you, but, but aren't, don't have that skill set to actively manage their portfolios or take advantage of those dips and those types of things, or are just have their portfolio in there and it's just a rebalancing act? Is there like a, a rule of thumb or something that you can do that's totally automatic? to negate the need for those decisions? Well, it goes back to the research I did recently. I told you about where we were able to specify based upon today's inflation and today's market valuations, what your withdrawal rate should be. Mm-hmm. And historically, you know, we've got a template, let's say from 1947, which had the same characteristics, same market valuation, and we use that basically to use to measure your retirement against. Uh, and you shouldn't have to do anything. If you just want to lock in, you know, that 60-40 portfolio and balance every uh, three to five years, that's all you need to do. Uh, uh, it may get a little uncomfortable at times, 
But you know, if the market performs as it has in the past, you should be okay. Inflation is the, is the real, you know, boogeyman here that nobody nobody can foresee, and that's the danger. Okay, well, well, with that, let's go ahead and transition to our famous four. These are the the same four questions that we ask every single one of oh, our guests. Okay, yeah, and uh, and uh, we'll we'll get right into it. I am so fascinated to hear what is your favorite finance book, Bill. Oh, uh, Security Analysis, that great book that Warren Buffett based his career on. Classic from the 1930s, you know, I, I cut my teeth on that book and I read it once every couple of years, even though I don't buy individual stocks much that anymore. It's just the logic, the understanding of how markets work, you know. And Graham. Yeah. Classic. Um, what was your biggest money mistake? Oh, I told you how well I did with my clients getting out of the market in 2008, but I didn't tell you what a lousy job I did getting them back in <laughs> after the market <laughs> came back. I have to be full disclosure here. I took, I, I did a poor job of that. That's because I did not have in place, uh, you know, the methods that I have now uh, to take advantage of lower prices. I, got, I was very scared of what was happening in the world. I got a lot of people were, uh, but I should have taken advantage of the low valuations at that point and just held my nose and, put my client's money and it took me a couple of years. And by then, you know, we had lost a lot of the advantage we gained in, in being out of the market in, in October, November, 2008. So that was a big and very painful mistake. Mm. Love that opportunity cost. It's a, yep. a, a great, great mistake. Always yep. one of my favorites that when people mentioned that, Hey, I, I could have done this better. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Bill, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Oh, learn to be savers. You have to stack it away. Uh, and uh, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances are, do the best job you can, put as much as you can, grit your teeth, and it'll, you really enjoy it once you get to the other end of the, the journey. Yep. And that, the end, other end of that journey is when you have 25 times your annual spending or right. can withdraw on the 4% rule. Not way past that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. All right, well, what, what is your favorite joke to tell at parties? Oh, gosh. Oh, I got an Abraham Lincoln joke, if you can tolerate it. You know? <laughs> Fantastic. This, you probably don't have many people tell Abraham Lincoln jokes. Remember where he was uh, a young politician before the Civil War was running for the Senate, U.S. Senate, and uh, he was stumping around the country with his opponent, and his opponent just finished a very impassioned speech in which he called Lincoln all kinds of names, including uh, a two two-faced politician. And then he sat down and Lincoln stood up. And Lincoln, you know, is not a handsome man. said, ladies and gentlemen, my opponent has called me a two-faced politician. I want to ask you, if I had another face, would I be wearing this one? <laughs> <laughs> I wish oh, I that's fantastic. I wish I could have been there to hear that. He was a brilliant man, <laughs> remarkable man. He was a brilliant man from my home state of Illinois. Oh, okay. Bill, where can people find out more about you? On the internet. Uh, I have a Wikipedia page for what it's worth. Uh, That's LinkedIn. huge. Yeah. LinkedIn. Uh, I have a, a small biography. If I get my book, I have some biographical information. Uh, it depends on what they want to know. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where, where can people find your book or, or when does the new updated version um, and, and work become get released? 
Yeah, it's currently on Amazon.com. Probably down to the last 50 copies that I, I bought the access to the publishers after they, they stopped publishing. Uh, and then my new book, I hope to get out uh, sometime later in 2021, probably in Kindle, because I, I use a lot of charts. I love charts, and I love to use color. Very expensive to do print color, but Kindle, I would think, will be still very affordable. And sorry, I, I just missed it. When, when will that come out? Uh, hopefully later next year, later, later next in 2021, year. yeah. Okay, great. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. And uh, maybe when that comes out, we can ask you some more questions about some of the newer research. Love to get uh, back with you folks. I enjoyed this. That would be awesome. Okay, Bill, thank you so much for your time today. This was fabulous. And I'm so happy to have had a chance to talk to you. It was a real thrill. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you yeah, for thank coming. Thank you so much. It was a real real pleasure to learn from you and to, to hear you talk about this original research yourself. So uh, what an honor and thank you very much. You have best luck to you folks. Okay, thanks, Bill. We'll talk to you soon. Hope so. Have a nice holiday. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, Scott, that was Bill Bengen. What did you think? I thought it was great. I thought it was a fun discussion to have about some of the uh, some of these items here. I, you know what? I was surprised. I shouldn't have been because that was his job. But for whatever reason, it kind of surprised me when he started talking about his active portfolio management. But you know, I guess like if you spend you know decades researching this topic and you know your numbers and those types of things, yeah, you're going to actively manage your portfolio. But man, what a brilliant conversation! And and. You know, great questions from us. Great answers from Bill. Uh, I just had a lot of fun today. <laughs> great questions from you, the listener, as well. That's right. You listeners set us up with really good questions. So thank you. Yes. Yes. I absolutely was delighted to have him on the show today. He knows his stuff. He's super sharp. And you can ask him. I was actually really surprised that people were talking smack about him and saying, oh, this isn't right. Uh, it's math. How many times did I say that in the episode? It's math. You can't lie with math. And he didn't lie with math. And look at this. Now he's saying, you know what? And he wrote an article in September and it was for Financial Advisor Magazine. It was called Bill Bengen Revisits the 4% Rule Using Schiller's Cape Ratio and Michael Kitsis's Research that updated his position and said, you know what? 4% was the safe withdrawal rate, was the absolute worst case scenario withdrawal rate. In that article, he says that a lot of people can go 7 to 13% depending on when they're retiring. I'm still basing mine on the 4% rule and I'm going to withdraw 4%. I've got to that point. It's actually, uh, we've gotten more than that because I'm still working. But it just reinforces the fact that he's right. He's totally right. He's 100% right. And if you want to argue with him, uh, call him up and he will tell you just how wrong you are. He's actually very sweet and won't do that. But he's right. If you want to retire early, the 4% rule is, it should be written in stone. Well, yeah, I think the 4% rule by definition finds the worst case in all of history, right? So the only way you wouldn't believe the 4% rule is if you think there's going to be a period coming up that is way worse than all of history. In that case, you might run out of money or more likely just end up with less wealth than you started with after a 30-year time horizon. But again, if you're using this, if you're listening to this and you're on the way to early retirement, what you think about is, great, the 4% rule is the worst case in history. Or here's how I think about it. Once I'm at 4%, I'm retired. That's it. I'm retired. And I also acknowledge that there's this 2% chance that I run out of money 
before the end of that period. And there's maybe a 25% chance that I end up in that period with, with less wealth than I started with. But what a great starting point for someone who is retiring early. Because look, that 4% rule does not assume that you're not going to earn another dollar in your life. It assumes that you're not going to adjust your spending if there's a time that, that, that calls for it and your portfolio begins to shrink. It assumes that you're not going to get social security income. It assumes all of these different things that make it incredibly, even more conservative than that. So if you're trying to think about like, what is FI to me, and you're not a real estate investor or small business owner, you're just earning money and stacking it away in stocks and, and bonds, the 4% rule is as good a starting place as you're going to find. There's just not going to be a more conservative, reasonable assumption with that. That said, I also acknowledge that a lot of folks go on to then build up cash piles in excess of that. They go on to buy other assets and those types of things and layer those into their calculations. So go for it, but use it as a starting point and the rule of thumb. You're free when you get to 4%. You could be free. You can choose to stay working if you really enjoy your job, but you'd... That's the freedom. whole point of financial independence is to have the choices available to you. And yeah, once you hit the 4%, my super math geek, brilliant husband still was not convinced after reading all of the things. He still wasn't convinced and had that one more year syndrome. And once he finally left, he's like, yeah, it just continues to grow. And yes, he's got me working, but the portfolio continues to grow without adding to it as well. So- yeah, this is the safe withdrawal rate. And oh, it was just so much fun to talk to Bill. Should we get out of here, Scott? Let's do it. Before we do, I want to send a huge thank you to Michael Kitsis for introducing us to Bill, for Michael's brilliant research extension into the 4% rule, and just in general for being a superhuman being. The notes for today's show can be found at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow153. Do you know somebody who argues with you about the 4% rule? Have them listen to this episode and have them read the article, the original article we will link to in the show notes as well. Have them read that and then have an intelligent conversation and don't tell them I told you so. From episode 153 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying later, Tater. market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today.
The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.